Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Mark Brown. Mark is a co-founder of Beta, a platform that enables the sending and receiving of digital audio files in a clean, simple, and secure way. Based in Stockholm, Mark discussed not only the evolution of his career, but the parallel changes in music distribution, promotion, and consumption over the last 20 plus years. I hope you enjoy our talk. What? <laughs> Your background. <laughs> it's, it, it's, a, it's a stock background. It's a stock background. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this so funny? <laughs> I'm easily amused. <laughs> oh, good. Is it, the bar is pretty low these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Under Corona. Yeah, I'm, a little, I'm a little punch drunk from being inside the same four walls. Now I know what yeah. solitary confinement's like. Um, yeah, yeah. How are you, Mark? Good, good. How are you? Where are you, where are you though? So, I am in a secure location uh, just south of Seattle. Um, oh, a wow. A town called okay. Normandy Park. Yeah. Where oh, are nice. you? I'm in Stockholm, Sweden. Oh, Okay. So that's one thing I couldn't determine from the few things I read about you was where you are at any given place in time. I, I thought it was somewhere between Canada, America, London, Sweden. Um, yeah. Sweden your base? Yes, it is. And I used to live in London. I've lived in Stockholm for four years. Then I lived, before that, I lived in London for 18 years. And then before that, I lived in Canada. So I'm Canadian. So I, okay. say, out, I say out, not out. <laughs> yes, yes exactly several generations ago my people came to america through canada so um, oh good we have some affinity yeah. there yeah nice what era what, what years were you in uh london i'm sorry i didn't do the quick math from from nine from 98 to just after they announced brexit so what's that 2016 <laughs> yeah okay so you saw a lot of change i mean i i started going to london in the sort of mid 90s and like a lot of global cities it's changed so much I, I my my initial perception was always of london as a very sleepy town closed early um maybe you could find a good club with you know some drum and bass or or after hours music but or late night music but um but then man early mid 2000s I really associate it with after, I know it's not the right connection, but I always think of it as after the, the bombings in the tube, it felt like yeah. when the city roared back from that, it roared back in such a big way. Yeah, like London, when I moved there in 98, it was sort of like, it was still pretty dumpy. And then I sort of describe it now as a pig with lipstick in the sense mm. that they really, there's a lot of nice facades, but it's sort of lost something maybe. I like, because a lot of clubs have closed. So it, it was good in the, the early 2000s. It was very good. But then like really famous venues closed, like the Astoria to build the new tube in the center of London. Um, so yeah, like <sighs> London, London sort of quote unquote party scene or whatever, club scene was always sort of very backdoor, probably like New York or like Tokyo or whatever. But um but yeah, it's different than it used to be. And I don't know if that's in a good way, but I would say that because I lived there 20 years ago. You know what I mean? That's so, right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. part of it. 
Um, yeah. All right. Well, before we before we uh, we we sort of dance through it all, tell me a little bit about um, taming back to the beginning because I want to set the stage before um, before we talk about Baita. Um, you you grew up in Canada. Yeah, like I was born in Toronto, grew up in Ottawa, then moved out to Calgary near the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And then I moved to the East Coast to go to school. And then that was sort of mid-90s, but I hated university. So I dropped out and moved to Halifax. Do you know where Halifax is? Sure, sure. I'm, I'm from near... the East Coast of America, so I know Nova Scotia and that whole area. Yeah. Ah, okay. So basically at that time in the mid-90s, Halifax was known it was going to be the next Seattle, basically. There was, I don't know if you remember Sassy magazine. There was like this classic mid-90s magazine, and they wrote an article basically calling Halifax the next Seattle because wow. all these bands from that area were getting signed to Sub Pop. And so I moved there and started working, and then I started touring with bands, and then we started a festival. And then I sort of the label ran out of money. It was an artist run label. And then I had just been over to Europe and I thought, Oh, well I'll move to London. That sounds like a good idea. I was only like 2021. 20, and so I just moved to London on a whim and started working in a, in, at a record distributor, pulling records off the shelves or whatever, back when drum and bass, they did loads of drum and bass. So I'm quite G'd up on my drum late nineties <laughs> drum and bass. And I did that for a while, like a year. And I kept telling people in the warehouse, well, I'm going to go work at a record label. And they're like, no, you're not. You're going to be here for f in five years. And then with, within 10 months, I went to the work in the A&R department of uh, creation, you know, Oasis, Primal Scream, mm -hmm. Super Furry Animals. So I did that for a year until Sony bought them. Then I went back to the record warehouse. And then I became a, uh, a radio plugger. And I did that for, I had my own company for about, 14 years so bands like the hives and the yeah yeah yeahs and booker t yoko ono wilco loads of different stuff mm -hmm. and then primarily I was, was it primarily american stuff trying to break in the uk yeah yeah i've always liked american indie rock really and so i, I there was a couple labels that i worked with quite a lot anti epitaph this uh, uk label called wichita and they signed a lot of that kind of stuff. And so I sort of, if, you, if you're independent, you get to work with stuff you like. And it makes the job a lot easier. Whereas, say, if you're at a major label, you're working with lots of different artists. And the challenge is to try to convince other people to play records that you might not like yourself, but someone, someone else will. But for me, it was super easy when I was talking about records I liked. So Yeah. What's a, uh, what's a record plugger do when the new Yoko Ono shows up on his desk? Uh, that's a good question. Like... She she actually did she did quite a bit. I don't even know if she had a new record. She was coming to town because she was it was John's birthday and they liked that tower somewhere in Europe. Is it in Norway or something? So she came to town and she did a podcast and stuff and it was amazing. Like it was amazing to see her talk. It was it was it was actually unbelievable. <laughs> she did a she hosted a radio show on BBC Six Music. And it was pretty. It was pretty impressive to hear her talk. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, as, as such an accomplished woman as an individual, but just what she has seen in her lifetime. Um, and I think if you've never heard her speak, or you're a, a bit cynical about her, maybe you would think that 
it's a lot of talk, like the positivity, but when you see it in person and she's older, like she was at least 70 at the time, I'm assuming. And her positivity is legit. And it's pretty amazing to hear it in person and have her sort of talk through all the things that she's known for to hear it live was pretty amazing, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, before we continue on from there, tell me a little bit about, um, just because I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with, with, with people's uh, backstory, what, um, what took you from Toronto to Calgary? That seems like, especially at that time, a pretty big change of scene. It was basically my family moved because like at that time, Calgary in the mid nineties was like a really like Dallas or something. It's probably yeah. still like Dallas, but we, we just, we just moved out there because my dad got a job in the oil and gas industry or whatever. And that's all the, there was there at that time. And I probably still is. They're trying to, uh, they're trying to move into tech because the oil industry isn't doing so well at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. Well, when you say it was like Dallas, let's not let's not leave anything unsaid. Is it that it was also new and and that sort of new clean version of of urbanization? Or do you mean like Dallas just because it was all sort of oil money? It was all oil money and it was very new. It was very new. Like, you know, it was in everybody. No one no one grew up there. You never met anyone from who grew up in Calgary. Everybody moved west, which at the time I didn't think about. But you think about now it's like the way people left crowded Ontario, central Canada to move out West. And it's like a complete, a completely different attitude, which, you know, after you've been to Texas a couple of times, and I don't mean Austin, the rest of Texas, hmm. it's pretty, it, it, there is a wild West feeling to it that you don't get in other places. And it was, I definitely, I see the, the, the similarities when I go to Texas compared to Calgary or whatever, yeah. to Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's funny. I, you know, I moved out here to Seattle from uh, after spending about 20 years in New York and, uh, and I grew up in the Northeast and uh, there really is a difference in the Western part of the, not just the country, but in the continent. Cause I, I, I have heard the same thing in, uh, from Canadians that, um, you know, there is a bit more of a, I don't know, I guess it's the, the, the sort of the fetish, the fetishization of personal freedom um, and how that manifests in terms of, um, you know, you can go to say a big outdoor gathering and there's very little police presence. Whereas, yeah. you know, on the East coast, you'd never have a, you'd never have a 10 or 20,000 person event in central park without feeling like, Oh, there's adult supervision everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's interesting because it, like the way you articulate it, like that sliver of uh, say sort of the, like the Dakotas, Texas, and Alberta, that's more of a don't tread on me personal freedom thing. That's right. Whereas then the, when you get to the West Coast, it's much more hippie. Do you know what I mean? Like I would never say that Seattle's like Alberta, but that underlying theme is a, what you've just said is actually quite a good way of connecting that part, of, that part of the world, even though there's different characteristics on the West Coast compared to Texas and Alberta, really. Yeah, it manifests in different ways, but that yeah. sort of everybody went West to kind of get away from whatever they viewed as yeah. the long arm of the law or the, yeah. <laughs> or the, no, or no, the totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. No, no, I agree. Definitely. And so, um, there's so much to unpack in terms of what you're up to now, um, with your current company, but can you take me through the transition from song plugger, um, 
I sort of want our conversation to be framed by what you were doing in um, what I'll call the old world and how you transitioned that to what you do now. Because I think that, that that's sort of the, the nub of the conversation or where the really interesting um, transition in your career is and the transition in the dynamics of the industry and how you talk and think about and, um, and sort of proselytize around this issue of how consumption's changing um, and how so much of the conversation about consumption has been focused on consumers um, and not enough about how industry people, um, how their consumption patterns have changed and maybe what, what, what some of the ball that's been missed there by not thinking about that. So could you kind of explore that with me a little bit? Sure. Like I think that the, the key thing that I think people overlook is, is that music discovery happens within the music ecosystem. So like if you're, if you're an artist working with other artists, you swap tracks, that's how you get known via your friends. And then if you need to get a booking agent, for example, like you need to send them music or you need to get a record label, music's, music's the currency. And so that's never changed. So the old world and the new world, in my mind, it's the same. You're just trying to get from a place where no one knows who you are to a place where lots of people know who you are. And you start in the music ecosystem and then you build confidence in that. And then hopefully that translates into the wider public. And so a radio plugger, that's exactly what you do. You are hired by labels or artists or managers to go into radio stations and say, Hey, look, this record's really good. You should play it on the radio. And back when I started, it was all CDs and you'd get delivered hundreds of CDs and you put them in jiffy bags and you'd send them, you know, puffy envelopes in America, like, and you'd send them out to radio stations or you deliver them by hand to people. And that is not environmentally friendly and it costs a lot of money and all that kind of stuff. So digital's a good transition. But what happened was when it started to transition to digital, it was all stuff like what was it called? You send it back then. I think it's called Hightail now or something. That's right. Yeah. All these, all these sort of platforms that were built for just generic file transfer. So we transfer and all that kind of stuff. And so th- that transition was pretty, people were skeptical about it, but it happened. And so you suddenly started ending up in a world where it was pretty easy to get a link instead of an album in the mail or whatever. But the problem is, as much as albums are bulky, if you need to find it on your desk, you need to listen to something. It's pretty easy to find, isn't it? There's a stack of things, you know, be it CDRs or sleeves, you know, jewel cases, easy to find something. But if you're getting sent links all the time, they're all being sent by email. It's impossible to track anything down. So you, what's happening is, is you're creating initially a barrier to listen to things. And if people can't listen to the music they're sent, they can't, how can you support someone? So say, for example, I'm an artist, you're a manager, and we have a great phone conversation, but then you can't never end up listening to my music because you can't find it or whatever, the link expires. That means that no matter how much you liked me, you can't hear my music, nothing's going to happen. And so I started to think as a radio plugger, like this isn't just related to me, this is related to everybody in music. Because if you're a small artist, you use certain platforms, Dropbox, WeTransfer, private SoundCloud. But then all the way up to the largest record companies in the world, they use sort of watermark promo services for Mm, high security stuff. And essentially, none of them are built for 
sending and receiving digital audio. They're maybe built for a simple use case or they're not even built for music at all. And so what I came to realize and the reason we started building Beta was we felt that the world needed a platform specifically for sending and receiving digital audio to make that process of music discovery within the music ecosystem a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And so is that the description of what Beta is? Like how, if I, I say to you, uh, I run into you in the elevator, haven't seen you in years, what are you working on, Mark? A platform for sending and receiving digital audio in a clean and simple way. So that's the foundational view, the nuts and bolts. But what we're really doing is giving artists and their teams the tools and the knowledge to be successful. Because you need a tool to get your music to people, but then you also sort of need to know who to send them to and what the processes are. So that's why we've started a whole other side to our business to help deliver that knowledge. And is that, is that the How We Listen initiative? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because like, I think it was about a year ago, I sort of got sick of reading. You know, if you read the press, basically all there is is Spotify and algorithms and that's it. And no one's ever listened to a record with their own free will ever. You know, now it just doesn't exist. And so we started this interview series where we just interviewed people we knew and that we liked about how they find and listen to music to try to explain to people, to show other people that it's a lot more nuanced, that you're not a 55-year-old man who only listens to vinyl and has never been on the internet, or you're a 17-year-old woman who has never used a record player. It's not like that. It's way more nuanced. People listen to vinyl, they listen to find things on YouTube because music discovery is very, very nuanced. And that's the same within the music business, the music ecosystem, or as a fan. And yeah. we're trying to put that, make that connection that if you're an artist and you're trying to get noticed, it's not that <laughs> I wanted to say the, the quibby build it and they will come. <laughs> That you can't rely on just putting your music on Spotify and having everything work out. There's a whole load of other work you need to do. And that's what this, the interview series was called How We Listen. And now we started a nonprofit to do under that name to just teach people how other people listen to music, really. Wow, that's incredible. I didn't, I, I didn't quite see that that's what was going on there with the intention. Um, although I will say it got me thinking a lot about um, you know, something that's normally an organic process, right? Like listening to music, picking something up, stumbling across something. Um, it really made me think hard about where am I finding music? Like I, you know, and, and I've had a lot of like self uh, stories I've told myself about how I find music or how like I won't. Like what? Uh, Give me an example. A good one is that I don't generally take recommendations from people. Yeah. Uh, is that, that true? I, you think? Um, or is it a, is a bias? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a bias. It's definitely yeah. a bias. It's that I, I, <laughs> I, I know what I like and I go seek it out and I'm fairly self-contained in my musical journey. Of course, that's, that's, it's ridiculous to even say it out loud. I mean, who, 
It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. seem possible. I live in a bubble. I live in a bubble unaffected by any external factor. It's just, it's technically impossible. Yeah. And I hate everybody else's musical taste. Oh yeah. And no <laughs> one has better taste than I do. <laughs> they, people come to me for recommendations. Yeah. Well, but the I, thing is yeah. that for me, it's not about the, I don't go to that part where I go to is that um, it's not necessarily qualitative. It's that my musical taste is so unique. That's the story I tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, but, but I, what's been nice about that interview series is that a lot of people do have unique, I, I like hearing about people's unique systems for, you know, mm -hmm. how they organize stuff. But, but I also like certain themes come up that like, you know, I talked about how we've moved away from CDs, but loads of people have older cars which means that they actually listen to CDs in their car a lot. And this was something that it wasn't just people like say over 40 or something. It was like, or just people in the U S it was like loads of different people kept writing in that. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I listen to X, Y, and Z digital, but then I'm always in my car commuting and I listen to CDs all the time. And it's those kind of things that it's counterintuitive. You don't think that, it would be that way, but it makes total sense because who buy, who can afford buying new cars? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Something that, well, a couple of things that struck me. One was, um, I think this, this kind of speaks to your product a little bit or questions I want to ask you about your product. Um, you had sent me a piece to look at, um, a, a Forbes piece about, uh, about you and the company and some of these topics that, um, that we're discussing. And one of the examples was, um, just sort of casually as it happens after a gig, you giving um, Chris Price at the BBC a darkness CD way back when. Yeah, yeah. How does your, how does your product either today or aspire to replicate that same, hey, we just saw this great band. I happen to have one on me. Dig it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, there is no way ever that any product can replicate that. And I think startups that say that they're trying to, you know, create an environment to do that. Like what, our, what Beta does, we're not here to replace human experience. Like we're just here to make it easy to get the music from A to B. And it's because so, ma so many products try to sell themselves on solving the whole problem. Mm. And I think our goal is that you need to focus on building the relationships and again, this is what How We Listen is about. You need to focus on building relationships yourself. Like a relationship I develop with you will mean that you'll trust, as I say, as a radio plugger, for example, you would trust me to listen to what I send you. So we make the listening process easy, but I don't ever want to make out that we found some way to recreate personal experience in the digital world. Does that make sense? Like I think personal relationships are they might be different in a digital environment, like we're talking on Zoom or talking on the phone, but that's a personal connection. And I think the key is, is that I just want to make sure that, say someone, like if we were in the situation with Chris, that I could just pop on my phone, share that album with him right away. He could listen on the way home. Like that right. would be, but, but, but that's a technical solution. But the, but the real foundational part of that is the relationship I had with Chris and I still have that he knows me and he knows my music tastes and I know him and I know his music tastes. So there's a technical solution underpinning that 
relationship, but the real relationship is the personal one-to-one one. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think it's good to bifurcate there. So in the scenario where you and Chris have a longstanding relationship or, or a trusted validated relationship where he knows, you know, if Mark's going to turn me on to something, it's probably well worth a listen in your scenario where now you're trying to make it easy to get that music to him. Uh, what happens? Are you dropping him a link? Are you airdropping him something like, like what's the product do? I mean, let me, let me, but before, and before you answer that, the other thing I wanted to, to say to frame it was that for, for better or worse, I was surprised to find um, that in 2020, this was still a problem that hadn't been solved. Like that to me seems what's been going on over the last decade. And I think you answered at the beginning in terms of it's been non-use case specific tools that have been used or at the high end, you know, there's been these clunky, for lack of a better way to say it, like DRM type solutions, but man, it's so surprising to see here we are over 20 years into digital music and there's still an opportunity to solve this problem. Yeah. Like I think, so I essentially the problem is there's the three categories I mentioned, your generic file services, your artist streaming services, like, uh, SoundCloud and Bandcamp, because you can send links with those. And then these watermark promo services. But each of those only sits in their own lane, really. Dropbox sort of wants to deal with music, but the streaming's terrible. SoundCloud, if they hadn't gone the way they did, could have solved this problem. But they went the sort of the more, you know, public audience route. And then, and then those larger enterprise services, they've just never cared. And so what, what we do is, as a sender, as someone who shares music, you can share it any way you want. So watermarked, non-watermarked, you can send a stream, you can send, you know, any file format you want, upload in one, share it in another. So in the case of that, back to that situation where you're a gig with someone, it really depends. Does that person have an account with us? If they don't, they just get a link in an email like any other service. It's just simple. They click on it or whatever. But if they do have an account and they have the iOS app, suddenly I just share it with them and then they receive it on their app. It's that simple. So the key is to make sure the customer is the person who sends. You know, it's a freemium product, so you can use it for free or you can pay. But the real key here is the recipient, that everybody should be prioritizing how the recipient experience receiving music. Mm. And I think that has been in my mind, where the failure has been the whole way along, especially with a lot of those sort of uh, enterprise services, is that the customer is the record label, but really the only person that counts is the recipient. Because if the recipient can't listen, it doesn't matter how much the record label is paying, that process is failing. And what you want to do is make sure that when the opportunity arises for someone to listen to what you're sending them, they need to be able to get it the way they want to listen to it because everybody has a different, it's back to the music discovery thing. Everybody has their own preference. Some people want streams, other people want downloads. You know what I mean? So for us, it's about being able to share it with whoever you're, share, you're sharing your music with in the way they want it. Mm-hmm. And what differentiates the, uh, the uh, freemium from the paid product? freemium version is like uh it would be like we transfer the links expire after seven days but our view is the fact that most people only need to deliver something to someone temporarily 
because a lot of people don't even want the audio files. They just want to listen, go, that mix sounds great. You know, do another one or these edits need changing. So our view was it'd be unfair to charge people anyway. So. And so when you, go, when you move up to the paid product, you get things like storage or longer expiration dates or other sort of exactly. other variables Secur- you can control. Security, yeah, exactly. That's it, yeah. exactly. And, you know, because a lot of people initially with, the, with the, free, the free version or our artist account, they just need a very clean, simple way to send and receive digital audio. And so they shouldn't have to pay more for that. And everybody else, as it gets more complex, there's more space for to charge a higher fee, basically. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear some of those use cases because I've been on the receiving end of, you know, working with large established, say, mastering houses. And when yeah. they send me, um, you know, when they send me files to review, um, it's it's stupid, the software I have to download and how clunky. It's like, it's like... It's maybe a uh, from a UI point of view slightly better than something that ran on like Windows ninety five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? No, and 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 this is what I think the reason another challenge the reason this problem has still never been completely solved is the fact that in theory you can sort of use what's out there, but the but if you're receiving sending and receiving a lot of music you're losing a lot of time on this. A lot of times. So, so Dropbox sort of works, but not in this case, this case, this case, or this case. And, pr- and private SoundCloud works in this case and this case, but not in these five cases. And I think that's where the problem lies. Like mastering studios, it, you, you know, the fact that they all use WeTransfer or whatever is, is weird. Like, you know, there's no streaming function. Anyway, but th- that, that's the problem. Some of these things sort of work, mm-hmm. sort of work. And so what problems um, or use cases do you seek to address or ask another way? What's the, um, what's the real opportunity and growth potential for, what, for your company? So, the, the, well, there's two parts to it. Initially, those platforms that uh, larger record companies use, everybody knows they're not good. We're, they talk about being stuck in the 90s. Like, They've never innovated. They're ugly. They don't work properly. They're not as secure as they make out to be. So initially, that's the low-hanging fruit for sure. But the real potential we see is the artists. The the you know so many artists need to get their music to people, and they do it all the time. And like I'm on the other side of it all the time, where people are sending me tracks through. Google Drive, and it's impossible to listen to a WAV, you download it. And so that is the bigger, the bigger opportunity, but it's the bigger challenge because you know where the record labels are, they're easy to find. But to reach those artists, all those individual users at a you know, reasonable customer acquisition cost is a huge challenge. But our goal is, is if we're going after the whole ecosystem, that maybe we'll be able to do both. And I say and maybe. So, yeah, no, sure. Yeah. That's, 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 the, yeah. that's, the, that's the nub. So do you do that by, um, is it hand-to-hand combat to get to each artist or is it integrating your solution into other workflows? You know, do you get, you plug into to, to, to workstations? Do you plug into SoundCloud? Like how, how do you think about reaching those people? 
Huh, that's a very good question. The, the first is the, how we listen as a, as a marketing tool. I think mm. that uh, like I started going to a lot of conferences and I realized that a lot of what the art, what I knew the artist didn't know when I'd meet them, I'd a panel, we'd talk afterwards. So that's another reason we're doing all the, how we listen education stuff. But then we have been thinking about doing partnerships, just like you discussed uh, with like workstations, maybe, other distribu- distribution methods like that, we're actually building an API, which we haven't even announced yet. So people, if you look at the apps, like the web app and then mobile apps, those are entry points onto a network. But the network, the piping system, is basically can be, anybody can get onto the piping system using an API. So we've been thinking that we would like to see other people build products on top of our network for sending mm-hmm. and receiving digital audio. So that's, we haven't even announced the API. That'll be later this year, but that's one of the goals as well. Because we, I sort of feel that I have no idea what other people come up with building on top of what we've got. Because I think that would make things much more exciting because other people are going to have use cases I've never even thought of. Yeah, yeah. And has has there been any noticeable or measurable impact um, on your business as a result of, you know, COVID and changes in just, you know, the way business operates this year? Well, like we're a distributed team and we've always been. So our business, as it's been chaos for everyone else, like especially in the live businesses, you know, um, there's been no real change for us as a business, but you notice, I think people are getting a lot more used to doing everything online. And, and I, that, that sounds ridiculous to say, but I don't think people were as comfortable living and working online like as six months ago as they are now. And so I think like a couple people who I know who use our platform and they, they're, they're, you know, making a record and it's all half of it's done on zoom. And one guy's in Australia and, two people are in the U S and it's like, it's the normal way to do things now. Whereas I don't think anybody would have ever thought the recording process should, could be done or should be done in from a, from a long distance point of view, like you need to be in the same room, but there's no option anymore. So I think, I, I think it's creating different opportunities. I, I don't, I, I think the physicality losing that I think is unfortunate, but I do think people are th- starting to think, well, this isn't that bad. This offers other ways to do things. So you, I think it's easier to connect with different people because a festival or a conference, everybody had to go to the certain, that certain place. Now conversations are a lot more rich because you can include loads of different people in the conversation because you're not respect, restricted by the physical element. Yeah. I've heard a lot of anecdotes um, along that sentiment recently of um, just various technological either adoptions or things that had plateaued. You talk about just general usage or acceptance of, of certain methods of working together um, that have plateaued over the last few years or became sort of stagnant, not innovating as fast, and how this has maybe accelerated things that otherwise might have been three, five, seven, ten 10 years away. Things will move much faster in certain 
in certain lanes than they otherwise would have. And I think the, the notion of collaboration, um, and, and especially in the creative fields, um, is one that uh, I definitely hear a lot about from people. They're, you know, creative people will always adapt. They're forced to adapt. Um, they, they, they look to sort of innovate. If you believe that sort of innovation is, is creativity with a purpose, <laughs> you know, the yeah. people who will, yeah. who will move the fastest, I think, will be those who want to continue to create. Yeah, but I think like like there, there there is has also always been a problem I see in the in in music. I don't necessarily not in the music business, but like it, 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 there is, there is a fear of change. There has always been a fear of change, and I it's something that we we notice in our business that people oh I'm I'm you know I'm fine with those fifteen clicks. Oh, it you know I don't mind taking the fifteen clicks because I've memorized them, and I think. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem for people to feel comfortable with what they're doing. And I think that's the advantage of COVID is the fact that people didn't get to decide if they felt comfortable about it or not. They just have to do it. And then suddenly you wake up and go, hey, this isn't that bad. <laughs> you know, yeah. as, as far as uh, online collaboration is concerned, like I think a lot of people have been reticent to do it, even though in our company, it's natural to live online a lot of companies were uncertain about it and now they're forced to just go for it. And I think they realize that there are a lot of benefits. And I think that even within the music world is a good thing. I think it's a yeah. very good thing. It's going to be very interesting to see what some of those sort of social or societal implications are. Like, do people rush back to the offices? What happens to those urban environments and the, the ecosystem around, you know, clusters of office spaces and, um, you know, because again, this is all anecdote, but I know when I, when I speak to individuals, nobody says they're eager to go back to the way it was. They'd like life to open up a little bit more and they'd like some of the, some of the socialization opportunities, but nobody's saying, I want to go spend time on the subway. I want to go spend time in the car. I want to fly more. I want to, I want to, you know, go stand in line for coffee. There's a lot that wasn't working for people in their day-to-days that were contributing to, a constant state of anxiety or inefficiency, lack of productivity, um, just, you know, disharmony. And it's going to be very interesting to see what we can rebuild and how we rebuild it. Yeah. Like I love, you know, the story I always tell is we started Beta in London and then Jen, my co-founder, she moved to Australia and I'm like, well, this is it. It's over. How are we going to survive (laughs) as a company? Even though we all work from home in London. And then it was fine. Like it was, and this is a handful of years ago. And it was absolutely not a problem at all. And then I thought, well, God, if she's leaving, I'm moving to Stockholm. So like that's sort of how, how it began. And I, I think it's good that people take control of how they want to live their lives. Because I think you're completely right. There are a lot of situations that people are forced to put themselves in that aren't actually good for them that they don't enjoy, that don't make them feel very good, be that, you know, mentally or physically or both. And so the idea that there are options, I think is, 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 is a very good thing. I, I think it's unfortunate. I, the sort of the live business or whatever, I think that's yeah. very bad for a lot of people that they're missing out on something that, especially musicians, that, that's so normal to them. I think that the pendulum slung, swung a little too far the wrong way, but hopefully when it gets back to normal, that people will get to decide what's best for them 
maybe not what's um, uh, social, what was perceived as socially acceptable before, be that go to an office, work nine to five, and then go home. Yeah, yeah. What's the division of labor between you and Jen? She runs the app and I do the other stuff. So Jen is, she basically takes care of anything to do with the app. So the, the design, she looks over all the mobile apps, the dev team, and then we sort of have high level discussions about that really mm-hmm. would be, that would be the division of labor. Yeah. So she would, is it fair to say she's like product and engineering? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because I think like, I think it's important that you have one central person who owns the product and it's not like it's a top, we don't have a real, we don't have a top down structure, but if, if I need to know something high level, she's the one I go to. And I think yeah. it's good that people have high level views without being totally responsible for everything. Yeah. And so um, to sort of take us into the home stretch. Uh, so the end of your work, you're a few, you know, you're several hours ahead of me on the, on the West coast of America, the end of your work day comes or whatever, whatever your routine is, you're looking for something new to put on um, to listen to um, who and what do you, where do you turn? Oh, <laughs> you're going to love this. I, I absolutely love Spotify's algorithms now. I was yeah. very, very skeptical a couple years ago, but I really, really like this. It's been trained enough now that it throws up some surprises. Some surprises. We, 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 we swap a lot of music, like we use Slack, and we swap a lot of music, uh, swap a lot of music on there. Um, but then normally it would be shows and, you know, whoever's supporting. Um, but there's none of that. So, that. so there's a big gap from external factors for finding music, unfortunately. So, yeah. and I don't really, I don't really read my, I, like I've always preferred reading longer music pieces. So I don't find music through um, music writing. I find, I, I read more for the, the long, the bigger stories. Yeah. yeah. But, but I, I actually, as much as I was sort of criticizing Spotify, I think they've done a good job. Like those discovery playlists, if you train it well enough, We'll throw up some interesting stuff. Oh, like four Tets playlist. I think those kind of things are great. Like artist curated playlists I are something I love for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that about Spotify. That that's also something that comes up a lot in my conversation with people. Um, like the the Discover Weekly playlist on Mondays, I find that um it it you know it either tells me about artists I already know, but gives me a deeper cut or an album cut that I wasn't familiar with. Or it really does throw something at me that, um, that takes me down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And I would say at least two or three tracks a week I find are like, wow, this is a new avenue to pursue. And at the very least, you know, maybe half or more of the playlist is at least stuff I like. You know, it's not, it's like, okay, this is, this is newish to me. And it's not a fan. Like they didn't get me wrong. Like the algorithm is it's, it, I agree with you. It's, 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 it's doing a pretty good job. It, it's, it's improved. It's improved. I, I don't, I don't like previously you could really, it was very transparent. If you knew anything about record labels and stuff, you could just look through and go, okay, that's that artist. They're on this label, blah, blah, blah. It was very rudimentary, but it's, but it's improved markably. And I, I, like the playlist culture is good. 
artists who do their own playlists, I love. Like that Fortet one is amazing. And Ben, ben Watt from Everything But The Girl, his playlist. Uh, Numero Group has a girl groups one I like. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good opportunities. There's a lot of good opportunities. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's boring. I'm sorry. It's a boring answer. It's a terribly boring answer. I should it's, have something no, better. No. <laughs> it's not. No, I, I think what's <laughs> fascinating about it is that it really speaks to, uh, you know, you use the word opportunity. Like if you're an artist or you're um, a music related brand, B2B or consumer, like the fact that that's a way you can establish your aesthetic um, or, or speak to your community um, communicating sort of, you know, drawing a line in the sand about the aesthetic and about the music and about the, the culture that you're consuming and that you like and putting that back out there. Um, I think that's incredibly valuable. Um, yeah. But, but I think the key is, is it like anything is it needs to be sincere. Like the reason these playlists I mentioned are good are that they're clearly they're sincere about their music listening. They're not just making a playlist to, you know, tack at the top of their artist profile or whatever, you know, as with all this kind of stuff, you need to be sincere in what you're doing. I I think, I think that's how you, not overly sincere. I just mean you got to do it because you want to do it. And those like nothing lasts if it's just for some boring marketing idea, you have to enjoy what you're doing. You, You have to enjoy what you're saying. And I think those playlists are a good example of that, that, if you enjoy recommending music to people and you work on it, people will respond to it. I think for sure, because it's much different than the algorithm, much, much, much different. The algorithm is you can tell it's an algorithm. Whereas when you look at say something like Fortet's playlist, you know that it's different. Yeah. That's a funny distinct. That's an interesting distinction because one thing about the algorithm is that while I appreciate what it's turning me on to, very seldom do I say, geez, why did it pick this for me? Um, yeah. Even when it's something that's a hit, like when it's a connection, I kind of, I kind of know like why it, it thought I would like that. Yeah. And, 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 and the thing is, it's, it's almost like you want someone to recommend something that you know you won't like. Well, you're not going to like this, but I'm going to play it anyway. Because that's the way it should be. <laughs> it's like if someone's playing DJ, they get to choose. And, and, it, and that is the problem with those, it, it, that it removes the idea that it's like, oh, I hate this song. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it, it, so the, the failures and the nuances are missing from all this program, programmatic selection. And I think the failures and the nuances are what make things exciting. Yeah. In, no, I like with anything, you, you know, like, yeah. yeah. Like if, if everything went great, life would be boring. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's all the crap and the bullshit that makes the good things really good. And it's, it's, it's that contrast. And I think that's the problem with robots choosing music for yeah. you. That there's well, no I, duds. <laughs> I, well, I've always appreciated um, what I would call, uh, you know, bad reviews. Like I've, you know, I, yeah. I could read a, I could read a review in a magazine or wherever and the reviewer might not like something for a very specific reason. And I say, well, I actually like noisy dissonant <laughs> music. So maybe, yeah. you know, maybe I would like, or I like, you know, uh, you know, whatever yeah. it is. But, but, but like, but, but, if, but music curation or recommendations or any of that kind of stuff is a dialogue. It, 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 it well, in my mind, it, traditionally it should be a, like, if I'm saying to, my friend Chris, like if I'm giving him a record to listen to, I, I, that is a dialogue. 
And I think that is super important. And Spotify can't replace dialogues. They can, they can deliver, they can bomb you with things you might like based on previous listening habits, but you know, previous listening habits don't indicate success in the future. Do you know? So it, it's that dialogue that I like. Like if a, rec- if a reviewer hates a record you like, you get pissed off about it. You think, why? That's so unjust. You know, he, they don't know what they're talking about. Or, yeah, I totally agree. I'm going to start reading their reviews more. And I think back to what you're saying about, like, like digital is never going to replace that kind of stuff. Never going to. Oh, well, I certainly hope not. And I think that's what I like is the dialogue. And I think that's what you just hit on is, is you, you know, it, it's nice when you disagree, you know, and that, that's the color of the contrast that makes everything more exciting, really, I think. I'll tell you what, that would be a fun Spotify playlist if they could get the algorithm to say, here's stuff just left of center that you should check out, but you might not like. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would listen to that playlist. It's just, <laughs> you, 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 do, you, do, you do not write playlist titles as a, for a living. I'll tell you that. It's, that, doesn't <laughs> run, that doesn't run off the tongue, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I can't be good at everything. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you just, you just got to work on it. Stick it into an algorithm and it'll pop out a catchier name and, and then exactly. stick your own name on it. You'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. Um, Mark, thank you for making time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I knew you were going to be fun to talk to, and, uh, and you were. So thank you. Thanks so much. It was a good laugh. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Mark Brown and the team at Beta. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever else you like to get your podcasts from. While you're downloading and listening, please also leave us a rating or a review. Thanks so much. As always, keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.